This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. I'm Claude Barabee, the director of the U.S. Naval Academy Museum. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Eric J. Dolan, who earned his Ph.D. in environmental policy and planning from MIT. He has worked for the Environmental Protection Agency and the National Marine Fisheries Service and was a staff member in the U.S. Senate. Among his books are A Fewer Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes, Black Flags, Blue Waters, The Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates, and the book which first brought his work to my attention, When America First Met China, An Exotic History of Tea, Drugs, and Money in the Age of Sail. His latest book is Rebels at Sea, Privateering, and the American Revolution. Dr. Dolan, welcome to Preble Hall. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, I'm, a, I'm definitely a fan of your work, and I, uh, I appreciate this time period. This is what I did my PhD in, uh, in the early Republic. So I really want to jump right into it uh, by asking you, what was the shift that you did in your career over to writing maritime history? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, make it, I'll make it quick. Uh, as you, you know from my background, my undergraduate, master's, and PhD are all in biology and environmental policy. When I was a kid, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau when I grew up and be a marine biologist. And then I got heavily into malacology and seashells. Anyway, uh, the reason I went for my PhD is because I thought I wanted to be a professor of environmental studies. Uh, being at MIT, although there are many good aspects to it, I uh, wasn't a big fan of the academic environment, but I knew that the kind of books and articles I would have to write to get uh, tenure were not the type that I naturally gravitated for. To two. So after I graduated from MIT, I never applied for a teaching job. And I had a whole series of jobs in government, nonprofit groups, consulting, and all along, most of them were environmental issues. But I was always writing on the side. I started writing when I was in high school very seriously. And I loved writing and I gravitated naturally to history. I grew up within uh, a couple of miles of Long Island Sound, and I've always lived near the ocean. I'm talking to you from Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is right on the ocean. And something about the ocean has always uh, grabbed me. So I started writing books. And uh, in late 1990s, I turned to my wife and I said, I'd like to be a writer. And she said, fine, put away a year's worth of your salary before you can quit. And it took me about four or five years I wrote Leviathan, the History of Whaling in America. It did well enough to uh, earn me some money and also get me a two-book contract. And that's when I quit to become a full-time writer in 2007. And so far, it's uh, worked out. I couldn't have done it without the support of my wife. But I just love maritime issues. That doesn't mean that I won't write a book in the future that's not maritime-focused. But what happens when you start writing a number of books like this is you become a little bit pigeonholed. And uh, my publisher and agent are always encouraging me to stay in the maritime field. And that's fine so far. So that, that's how I transitioned. And I'm not trained as a writer, but I, I, I am trained as a researcher. And I like the researching part of it. And I guess I'm a good enough writer to pull it all together. And we're on a Zoom right now. So you could probably see how, what I've done. <laughs> and people will call this sacrilege. But I, when I read a book, and especially when it's a book by somebody I'm going to interview, I tend to mark it up a lot because I have a lot of questions. Yeah. And there's just a lot of good data in here. And I have to say, Dr. Dolan, that uh, this is stuff that I will use in my Naval History course this semester. So a lot of the data that you have. Uh, 
So let, let's get into talking about now a lot okay. of our uh, midshipmen who, who might listen to this and faculty know the difference between a pirate and privateer, but can you briefly explain the difference between the two? Sure. I mean, uh, pirates are the enemies of all mankind. They go out and rob ships of any nationality for their own benefit. They're not Robin Hoods of the sea, taking from the rich to give to the poor, unless you qualify the poor as being themselves. Uh, they are often notorious people. They're not fighting for any larger cause. But the reason a lot of people think privateering is legalized piracy is because uh, in the early centuries of privateering, starting even in the 1300s and certainly in the 1600s and early 1700s, a lot of privateers who had letters of mark acted exactly like pirates and they in fact were pirates. I talk about that a lot in my book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, which uh, during King William's War in the late 1600s, there were a number of privateers with letters of mark that actually did not attack the French as they were supposed to, but they attacked Mughal shipping in the Indian Ocean and came back and shared that booty with their friends and family in the colonies. And they were out and out pirates. But during the American Revolution, privateering, which there are international norms related to it at the time, privateering was not pirate piracy. These men were fighting on behalf of a cause. They had regulations that they adhered to. They treated their prisoners when they took them fairly well. They didn't take all the money just for themselves. They brought it back. It had to be adjudicated. And yes, they split it with the owners. So there was a profit motive involved, but they were not pirates. But the thing is, some people still say, oh, they're just pirates. They use the same skills. And that's true. They have the same skill set. Even if you want to label them pirates, the point of my book is that privateers and privateersmen had a major impact on the outcome of the American Revolution, whatever you want to call them. I don't view them as pirates. And after the war was over in 1783 and their letters of mark were rescinded, none of the privateers that I know of during the American Revolution turned to piracy. They went back to being merchant mariners, fishermen, landsmen, and uh, they they went on with their lives. So, uh, so I think there was a distinction. You sort of touched on this, but what are some of the myths that people have about privateers? Well, one of them is that they're just pirates out and out for themselves. Uh, another myth is that they were only in it for profits. And I think it's very important to look at the American Revolution and all the people involved every single element involved in the American Revolution, whether it's army men, navy men, privateers, our founding fathers, all had a combined profit and patriotic motive. In fact, the whole reason for the war starting was arguments over the Navigation Acts and the way in which Britain, Britain was treating uh, the American colonies in a financial or mercantile perspective. So to say that money didn't have anything to do with it, I think is a little bit uh, disingenuous. The people who fought in the Continental Army were initially brought to it in early 1775 because they were uh, brimming with patriotic fervor after the battles of Lexington and Concord and the Battle of Bunker Hill. But after a while, even people like George Washington, who is, has a great perspective on human nature, said there's no way to prosecute a war for more than a short period of time unless the people fighting it have some prospect of reward. It is human nature. And the men who fought in the army, they had to be paid. 
they were given uh, they were given promises of land and payment to keep them at the front ranks of the of the army and in the continental navy as well they were paid and they also got a cut in the prizes so uh and and the most importantly is the continental congress the the men who put into place the privateering act they realized that patriotism and the pursuit of profits didn't have to be mutually exclusive. And if they didn't feel that privateering was for the public good and was helping to win the American Revolution, they could have squashed privateering at any time, but they never entertained that throughout the war. So I think that's one of the most important myths is that somehow privateersmen were so different from their fellow Americans at the time, and they were motivated purely by making money instead of having any patriotic impulses. And I believe they were just as patriotic as other Americans of the day, whether they were fighting in the army or the Navy or just living their lives. It was a very complicated war and there were a lot of motivations that people had. Why did the former colonies and Congress employ them against the British empire? Well, uh, if you were a well-functioning, well-funded government, starting a Navy from scratch would be an incredibly difficult task. Uh, unfortunately, the Continental Congress was not particularly well-functioning. They were trying to herd 13 colonies that were often like individual countries, and they had no ability to levy taxes. So getting money to create this Navy, whether it's through building frigates or purchasing them from France, or other willing countries, it took a lot of money. And this is something the Continental Congress was continually short of. So when the Continental Congress, they would love to have had a very powerful Navy to go toe to toe with the British Navy, but they knew that that was an impossibility. The small Navy that they created of about 60 vessels that fought on the Atlantic or, or that, that operated in the Atlantic, they were never intended to go toe to toe with uh, British ships of the line. They were intended to attack British merchant shipping and protect colonial ports and engage in diplomatic activities and perhaps capturing munitions. So the Continental Navy, while I, I'm not disparaging it, it, it was the Continental Navy's and the Navy's first hour. It wasn't its finest. And into the breach sailed privateering in a very real manner. The people of the Continental Congress and Americans in general were very familiar with privateering. It was, in a sense, a cost-free Navy and a militia of the sea, and it was one that could be pulled together very quickly and one that could have an impact on the course of the war. Because after all, Americans who were British citizens had during the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War and even earlier wars employed privateers to help the mother country beat their perennial enemy, the French. So they were very familiar with privateering. They knew that it was a quick way to tap into the impulses of the American people and especially the merchant and mariner class to whip up a Navy in effect that could start creating real problems for the British. Do we know how many letters of mark were issued during the American Revolution? Yeah, unfortunately, the, uh, the records are not perfect, but the best accounting that we have is that it was something in the neighborhood of 1,600 to 1,800 letters of mark, and it might have been considerably uh, more. There's a lot of duplication in the records. There were fires. Uh, 
people weren't as good in keeping records back in the day, but that's our best estimate. And those 16 to 1800 letters of mark vessels captured on the order of nearly 2000 British ships during the course of the war. Now you talked about regulation earlier on. Uh, I know that in the course of my uh, doctoral research of the 1830s, I came across all these courts martial uh, because privateers fell under the act governing the Navy. Uh, well, you know, several years after the American Revolution, and you'd see these uh, laws for privateer pensions. But how were they regulated, and were they how were they how were they legitimized? I should say. Well, they were legitimized, I, I think, because there was a long history of using privateering in Europe and in conflicts uh, uh, throughout the. Atlantic, even though that the privateering laws were often abused by those that issued letters of mark, it was still a well-established form of amplifying your power on the seas during times of, of war. Uh, but they were legitimized. So that's how they were legitimized. The regulations, they basically said you could go out and capture British ships or neutral ships that were, that were carrying British munitions or supplies to the British Army or Navy, uh, you were supposed to bring those ships, and they didn't always do this, but you were supposed to bring those ships into port. There was supposed to be a vice admiralty court proceeding where they determined whether or not the prize was a legitimate prize. If it was, then the ship and the cargo was put up for auction. 50% of the proceeds went to the owner and the investors in the privateer, and 50% went to the men who fought on the decks of the privateer. They were not supposed to treat their prisoners should they take them in a uh, poorly. Uh, and for the most part, from what I was able to find out, they didn't treat them poorly. Certainly many Americans that were captured by the British were treated quite poorly. Uh, and you had an extension, uh, sorry, you had a really extensive uh, study of the prison ships as well in your book. Oh yeah. That, yeah, that was that was horrible. So, I mean, the regulations, there weren't there weren't a huge number of regulations. You know, they were supposed to they had to capture certain types of ships. They had to treat the prisoners uh, properly. They they couldn't take anything out of their prizes before the adjudication process. So they couldn't line their own pockets uh, until it was determined that a valid prize was taken. So it wasn't a heavy handed type of regulation, but it was one that kept them in line. And uh, again, Americans were familiar with this. Many of the privateersmen who operated during the American Revolution had experience that came from the Seven Years' War. And you mentioned prison ships. I mean, the prison ships was totally new to me. I mean, so much of this book was totally new to me because I picked topics that I don't know a lot about because in part because I'm not trained as an historian, but in part because I get bored easily. And I figure if I pick a topic I don't know a lot about, I'm gonna have like a two year master's course and I'm gonna be continually surprised. And that was one of the most horrific parts of the book to write and to read about was these prison ships. I mean, the numbers are just incredible. Something like 11,500 men, most of them American privateersmen died on board the Jersey prison ship alone, a former 64 gun ship of the line that had been moored in Wallabout Bay. I mean, that held between like 800 and 1200 men on any single day. That is just an astounding statistic when you consider that so far fewer men were killed in the direct line of fire 
during the American Revolution. And the stories, uh, one of the sources that I used extensively was a handful of men who survived the Jersey in particular, wrote their memoirs. And that not only illuminated their lives as privateers, but also what happened on board uh, the Jersey. Every day, the British guards would yell down to the prisoners, uh, rebels, bring up your dead. And between six and 12 men died every single day. It was just absolutely horrific. And those of your listeners who are familiar with the stories from Andersonville prison during the Civil War, I mean, there are parallels to be drawn. Uh, it just was an horrific chapter in the American Revolution and one that was born mostly, or the bad aspects of it, were born mostly by privateersmen. So let's put you in a court of law or a debate here for a second. <laughs> and you're asked to provide the criteria that were used to determine the success rate of the privateers during the American Revolution. How would you go about arguing that? Well, the, the absolute numbers, I think, are quite impressive. It was something on the order of 2,000 British ships. There was probably 8 to 10% of British merchant shipping at the time was being uh, uh, captured in one way or the other. In the Caribbean, where Great Britain had its greatest uh, trade corridor, it earned most of its money from its sugar uh, colonies in the Caribbean. In By 1778, American privateers had captured more than 250 British ships and trading to the area had plummeted by 66%. So that's one measure of success, of success that they were causing the British lion to roar in pain from a commercial aspect. Another measure of success is, is very, at, at the same time that many privateers were successful, many were failures and didn't capture prizes. But the fact that men continued to sign up for these privateers and owners continued to send out privateers throughout the course of the war means that there was some belief that success could still be had. And Robert Morris, who was the financier of the American Revolution and sent out many privateers, said that what you need to be doing is continually sending out ships because one success will make up for three or four failures. Now that's not any kind of solace to the privateersmen who are captured by a British ship and end up, end up in a uh, British prison ship. Uh, but I think it is an indication that there was success to be had. And the, the I guess the proof in a sense is in the, the pudding. <laughs> yeah, the, in the end, they, they contributed to the uh, weariness among the British in wanting to prosecute this war. And there were a lot of merchants, British merchants that were complaining throughout the war. And uh, they were viewed very negatively by the British themselves because they were so pesky and they were causing so many problems. And you can't argue a counterfactual. I, I can't say that without privateering, the American Revolution wouldn't have been won. Just like I can't say without George Washington, the American Revolution wouldn't have been won or without the Continental Navy. But I think there is a very strong argument to be made since so many elements contributed to the success of the American Revolution. And it was such a tenuous affair for so long. I think a very strong argument can be made that without privateering, 
it might have ended quite differently. And one thing we haven't talked about is privateering played an important role in bringing France into the war on the side of the Americans, which was a critical turning point in the entire conflict. And anybody who reads the chapter that I have on France and sees what Benjamin Franklin and the other commissioners were doing in France and the complicity of the French in helping American privateers, despite the fact that it was contravening British and French treaties and causing the British ambassador and the British parliament to become rather apoplectic over this French support. It's just an amazing, uh, I think, chapter in the American Revolution. Again, one that I knew nothing about. And all you have to do is read the words of Benjamin Franklin and the articles in the British newspapers to realize that privateering was more than just a mild annoyance. It was a major thorn in the side of French and British relations. <clears throat> and it, it certainly contributed to the enmity there that ultimately ended in France coming into the war on our, on our side. Let's uh, follow up on that for just a moment, especially with, with Franklin, because in your book, you talk about the investors. Uh, you know, the privateer captains weren't necessarily the people who owned the ship. They weren't the ones who were investing in this venture. Uh, the ship was owned by somebody else. And in many cases, you, you could have had somebody who owned several ships and had several letters of mark associated with them. Uh, you right. mentioned Elias Haskett, Haskett Derby, who I think Sure. I think he was the first millionaire to, in America from the pepper trade, but I may be mistaken. Yes. Uh, but yeah. can you talk about some of the investors, but also the politicians who invested in, in the privateers, which I thought was a really interesting aspect of your book? Sure. I mean, the, the main investors, in a sense, were the owners of the ships, but there was a speculative frenzy that sort of ran across the colonies as other people sought to invest in uh, in privateers, because it was sort of like betting, it's sort of like buying a lottery ticket. You know, you could get a big payout or you could lose. And uh, some of the people that invested that are more illustrious are General George Washington. He invested in a privateer that appropriately enough was called the General Washington, Nathaniel Green, Henry Knox, Elbridge Gerry, Paul Revere, Robert Morris, the financier of the revolution. Um, Josiah Bartlett. I mean, a lot of names that are associated with our founding fathers or their, they were in the mix of the civic leaders of the day invested in privateers. But it was much more than that. Uh, regular people, quote unquote, who had a little bit of extra money could invest in a privateer directly through an owner. But more usually what they would do is the privateersmen themselves who were on board, board the privateer could sell shares in their ultimate prize money that they hoped to receive. So there's a great example of Andrew Sherburn out of uh, New Hampshire, who gave his mother the power of attorney while he went off on a privateer to sell portions or all of his share. And his share was only one share of whatever this privateer was going to bring back. So if they brought back numerous prizes, it could be a lot of money. If they brought back nothing, his share would be worth absolutely nothing. It was sort of like with pirates, no pay, no prey, no pay. It was the same thing for privateers. So he, while he was away, his mother, who was in need of funding to keep her farm going, sold off a quarter share of Andrew's stake in the privateer. 
for 70 pounds, which was a lot of money. Uh, that money helped her survive while Andrew was away. It paid for feed for the cows and other things that she needed to keep the farm going. When Andrew came back on this cruise, it was a bust. They didn't capture a single prize. So the man who had paid that 70 pounds lost his entire investment. However, Andrew's mother made out quite well. So it, it was sort of like a stock market almost. Uh, that, uh, that arose during the uh, American Revolution when it came to privateers. And many of the many members of the Continental Congress either invested in privateers but they, or they certainly voted for enacting the privateering statute on March 23rd of 1776 to allow privateering to be a major part of the war effort. Yeah, it's, it's funny, Eric, that the... Uh... It's not some arcane system too. When we were dealing with Somali piracy, uh, you know, in, in the early 21st century, I, I was on a Navy cruiser off Somalia and there were, uh, you know, people who lived on land who were getting shares of, of, uh, of the ships that they had captured. You know, somebody might give an RPG that they had in the family or something or an AK-47 right. as, as a down payment. Um, what was the relationship to the Navy in terms of operations and competition for resources. And I, I think about this because as I was reading your book, I was, on, I was on vacation on the coast of Maine, not too far from the failed salt and stall expedition. So ah. talk, talk to us about how they coordinated or didn't coordinate. <clears throat> yeah, th there wasn't a lot of coordination. There were a couple of attempts to uh, have joint Navy and privateering expeditions uh, one of which was that that worked initially was the Penobscot affair or expedition, but it sadly came to a horrific end. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of uh, coordination between privateers and naval vessels. There is absolutely no doubt that privateering stole men and materials from the Continental Navy and the Continental Army. It stole men who were hopefully going to earn more money if they were on a privateer than on a continental Navy vessel or in the army. At least that was their expectation. And it stole cannons. I mean, a lot of the owners of privateers like John Brown in Providence also owned a foundry. And there's no doubt that he gave some preferential treatment to his privateers in terms of getting the cannons as opposed to supplying them to the Navy or the army. So there's no doubt that privateering had a negative impact on the Continental Navy, Continental Army, in terms of manning and providing uh, munitions and uh, the like. Uh, however, if there had been no privateering, I don't think that the Navy or the Army would have suddenly been bulked up much more than it was. I mean, as it is, the Continental Navy sucked 16% uh, of the Congress's expenditures and I don't think they could have done much more of a job in building a Navy quicker or purchasing a Navy. In fact, they went so fast with some of their frigates that they did build that some of the wood was still green. It didn't have enough time to be seasoned. So again, when you're considering privateering and the uh, sort of negative impact it might have had on our other military forces, you need to think, well, what would have happened if there had been no privateering at all? And even though it did take man manpower and munitions away from the Army and the Navy, the Army and the Navy still was able to put together a fighting force. And there are many examples of privateer owners giving cannons or munitions 
and sometimes money and supplies to the Navy and the Army. So it sort of went uh, both ways. Now, you mentioned that there were a lot of privateers that came back empty. Can you talk to us about some of the most successful privateers of the American Revolution? Yeah, uh, one of the most successful was definitely the Hulker out of uh, Philadelphia, Blair McClanahan, who was a former soldier and then became an owner of many privateers in Philadelphia, was known as uh, uh, the millionaire maker, or and he had a touch of Midas during the war because a lot of his privateers went out and were quite successful. The Hulker had 11 captains over, I think it was four years and captured more than 70 British prizes. One of those cruises, they captured 10 very large British merchantmen uh, that when they were sold, when the goods and the ships were sold at port, uh, garnered uh, roughly 2 million pounds uh, during the auction. So that was definitely one of the most successful of privateers. Uh, the Grand Turk, which was Elias Haskett Derby's privateer, a rather large privateer, built specifically for privateering. It wasn't a ship, uh, a fishing vessel or a merchant ship that was sitting there. Elias Haskett Derby invested in privateering by building this very large vessel, 300-ton vessel that had more than 30 cannons on board and can hold probably a couple of hundred men easily. Uh, it had a successful run during the American Revolution. One of its most successful prizes, unfortunately, was captured after privateering licenses were rescinded, but they hadn't heard about it. They were on the open ocean. And uh, when a Salem court uh, considered the matter, they decided to award this British merchant ship, the Pompey, to uh, <laughs> Elias Haskett Derby. I'm sure he's very thankful for that. But you mentioned uh, when America first met China. One of the things that was interesting is when I was writing that book, Many years ago, I knew very little about privateering. In writing this book, I suddenly discovered that some of the privateer owners and privateering vessels that were successful during the American Revolution formed part of the fleet that was the initial introduction of America to China. And one of those was uh, Elias Haskett Derby's Grand Turk, which was one of the first vessels to go over to Canton after 1783, when America suddenly uh, could trade with whomever it liked and whomever would want to trade with it. It was no longer uh, restricted by British navigation laws and, uh, and uh, trade restrictions. So, I mean, there were a number, but one of the things I wanna mention, especially since I'm talking to you, the Navy has a wonderful history over the last 200 some odd years and has a very, uh, expansive, you know, organization in, in the, the, the Naval Museums, the, Na the Naval Academy, that has done a lot of great stuff to document the Navy's own, own history from the very beginning up until the present. Privateers didn't have a similar organization after the American Revolution. A lot of them were average Joes and they went back to doing what they were doing before or they engaged in new activities. And so a lot of the privateering stories, I think, unfortunately, got lost because many of the privateersmen didn't sit down and write memoirs. Uh, however, the Navy, a lot of uh, naval men did. 
even from the American Revolution and certainly later on in the late 1700s when the Navy was reconstituted and during the War of 1812. And there, there is a deservedly illustrious history for the Navy that has been very well documented. And for a variety of reasons, some of which I'm not even sure of, privateering sort of got lost in the mix and not as many people wrote about it. And therefore, we don't have as many stories to draw on to, to, to tell the history. No, that's a great point because, you know, just really a few yards from my office is uh, the, the final resting place of John Paul Jones and every midshipman knows yes. John Paul Jones, the American Revolutionary. But I think your book does a great job in talking about the Jonathan Harridans of, oh, yeah. of, of the revolution. Uh, just a couple of final questions, Eric. First, uh, what were some of the best primary sources you came across? Ah, uh, a lot of the newspapers, there are about 30 newspapers being published in the colonies during this time, and they had many articles on privateering. I, I would have hoped it would have been great if they went into more detail because newspapers back then were not much prone into writing long pieces or essays. They, you know, the facts only, but those facts added up to a lot of interesting information. The letters and uh, diaries and journals of the Continental Congress and from our founding fathers, John Adams, as you know, a huge fan of the Navy. He was also a huge fan of privateering. He wrote a lot about privateering and privateering activities, as did many other founding fathers. So the documentation that they left behind, both while they were in the Continental Congress and on their own and letters between them was a really great source of material. Uh, there were also the few memoirs that were written by privateersmen that were very valuable to me in getting information about their privateering career and the horrors that they faced on the prison ships. Um, let's see, what else? I mean, there were some early histories that were written about the American Revolution in the early 1800s that did talk a bit about privateering. There are also a number of British newspapers and British sources that wrote about American privateers and how horrible they were, these pirates on the ocean and what they were doing. But by writing about them and writing about the encounters they had with British naval ships as well as British merchant ships, that added to the material that I could uh, draw from. So using all of those sources, plus some secondary sources that were written much later based on recollections, uh, I was able to craft the book, just like my pirate book. I wish there were more sources. I wish that more pirates, in fact, no pirates, sat down and wrote their memoirs. Fortunately for privateersmen, a couple of them did write about what they had done during the American Revolution. And some of the pension records, there, were, there was information that was in there. So uh, it's a lot of different sources. And I have no doubt that some more diligent researcher in the future is going to uncover uh, even more information. There are some journals, Jonathan Harridan's journals, logbooks during his voyages. Those were useful. Uh, perhaps there are other logbooks that are out there waiting in people's addicts to be found. Our guest for this episode has been Dr. Eric J. Dolan. His most recent book is Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution. Dr. Dolan, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. For those of you who've been listening, 
Uh, please join us again for Preble Hall. And if you like what you hear, please leave feedback on any of the platforms you're listening to this. Have a great day. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.